As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim White and I'm joined by my dad, still down the line from Austria, John White. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. I'm in Austria at the moment, so where this is the miracle of the internet, but it's good to be here. Um, and, and today we wanted to talk a little bit about friendship. It's a topic we've, we've covered previously on the podcast about six months ago, and that's because uh, Dad's book, Transforming Friendship, is, is due to be published in just a few weeks' time, I think. Is that right? Yeah, middle of November, according to the publishers. So uh, I haven't seen a copy yet, but I'm hoping it's it's going to be there. And um, we'll talk a little bit more about what that book involves. But but when we last uh, picked this up, we 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 talked about this idea under the heading of the hermeneutic of suspicion, which is a, a basically a bit a kind of grand way of talking about how friendship in modern culture in in kind of secular society had been seen with suspicion. It was seen as potentially sexual or a power play. Uh, corrosive, incredibly kind of secondary and deprioritized um, in, in in contrast to romantic sexual relationships between partners um, or even kind of direct family relationships and, and how uh, this book kind of came out of your own experience uh, of, of the transforming power of, of, of Christian friendships that you've had throughout your life in particular with with John Stott, um, which I'm sure we we've discussed many times, and we'll come up again today, and kind of want your desire to really r- reclaim friendship for the church in in an era when the idea has become incredibly contested and devalued. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I am just increasingly aware how utterly sexually obsessed our culture is, uh, even though this is you know historically a relatively new phenomenon. I mean. If you take, you know, the 2000 years since the time of Christ, it's really only in the last 60 years since the 1950s, 1960s, that we've had a completely sex saturated uh, culture. Right? So we've had 1900 years when sex wasn't seen as incredibly important. I mean, it's quite useful for the procreation of the species, but uh, it was never seen as some absolutely central part of what it meant to be human. Um, but now we're in such a sexually saturated world that uh, sex and gender identity and, and so on just seems to be like the meaning of life. And I'm trying to push back 
and say that non-sexual friendship is actually much more important when it comes to living a Christian life. And, and we need to try and recapture the balance. And so last time we talked about, about that, about how friendship had become contested and devalued and suspicious. Um, uh, but this time we want to look on a slightly more positive side to, to dig into the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and look at how 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 do friendships work out in the pages of Scripture? What 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 is the kind of theological uh, foundation for for friendship, um, and setting us up hopefully to to think and to start to apply that at a future date to to how we can build healthy, meaningful, transformative friendships um, in in the twenty first century church. Yeah, that's right. But I think it is quite helpful to just to start by going all the way back to the classical era. Uh, where friendship, non-sexual friendship between men, so-called platonic friendship, was regarded as absolutely the highest level of relationship that human beings were capable of. Um, it, I did a bit of reading around this. What was really interesting was that basically the only friendship that was worth talking about and the classical authors discussed was friendship between elite males. Um you know, a non-sexual friendship. They, they, they knew all about eros. They knew that there was such a thing, of course, as, as physical sexual attraction. They were by no means innocent about, uh, you know, all the potential forms of sexual behaviour. But it was regarded as, I think, largely as a kind of madness which descended. And um, although Plato sometimes used eros in terms of longing for the divine it wasn't regarded as an important part of normal human relationships. It's, this, it's seen as a kind of base animalistic urge. And of course, the really virtuous, noble philosopher king that these societies praised above all would be able to uh, prioritise the mind and, and the reason, the logic. And it was relationships which were characterised, I guess, by that reason and logic, you know, to elite status educated uh wealthy independently wealthy males putting aside their base primal urges and, and having a meeting of minds that was kind of seen as in quite literally the platonic ideal yeah i think so and, and i mean it, it's slightly sort of you know painful and offensive but i mean many elite males would have had a younger boy often as as someone with whom they could relieve their sexual urges you know but but this was not of great significance, uh, it, it was this platonic ideal. So, so the idea of a perfect friendship, I think it's Aristotle who talks about a perfect friendship, is one in which you are drawn to the nobility of the other. It doesn't have any, any uh, material, pragmatic value. It's simply one elite male being drawn to the nobility of the other. And this is really um, surprising, I think, to modern ears. Um, for many reasons, but not least because I think our culture takes it just for granted that by definition, the apogee of relationship is the romantic one between two presumably sexually active kind of life-loving partners. And and the idea that a, a platonic sexless friendship between two men was the kind of acme of relationship in in the ancient greek or roman worlds is is quite shocking i think 
Yeah, it is. But it's but what is equally shocking is that the biblical writers and uh, the the following Christian era for nineteen hundred years again didn't see sexual. They they had a very different understanding of friendship, which we'll go into. But it was non-sexual friendship, which was incredibly important and central to to Christian living. So shall we um, dig into to friendship first in the Old Testament? Or I suppose really we need to talk about what do we mean by friend? Should we define our terms a little bit? Because I think that even the language of friend is ambiguous. Yeah, that's right. In fact, I think that's a big, huge problem because, you know, the, the word friend in English means virtually nothing or anything. You know, so it can mean, uh, you know, a, a Facebook friend, an internet friend, a casual acquaintance. It can mean a sexual partner, as in boyfriend and girlfriend. It can mean a, a relatively casual acquaintance all the way th- up to a sort of bosom pal or, or uh, a lifelong, uh, you know, someone who shares everything with. So, so I think the problem is this word has just got very weak. And, and so when we, you know, as we will come to Jesus says to his disciples, you know, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. And you think, really? I mean, that's, that's a bit weak, isn't it? You know, because because that word has become so devalued. Hmm. It's interesting. I, I just recently looked up the etymology of the English word friend, which um, is of Germanic origin, comes from the Old English friond. But ultimately, if you trace it all the way back, it comes from a proto-indo-european root meaning to love and it's actually Mm. the same root word which we get the english word today free as well so it did i think once have some quite more significant meaning but i agree over time it's become incredibly shallow uh, and can be applied to so many different relationships in so many different ways as you say it starts to lose any real explanatory power so what i'm fascinated by is the really intense end of the spectrum you know there clearly is a spectrum you know we all have a network of friends, uh, hopefully most of us do, uh, and, and some of them are, are really quite uh, casual. You know, they're, they're genuine, but we don't see one another from one month or year to the next. But we, then there's a spectrum through to a really intense heart sharing, you know, a bosom pal, somebody who is incredibly important and with whom we can be extremely intimate and extremely open. And it's really that type of friendship, which I've had the privilege of experiencing, you know, over my life, which has meant so much to me. Uh, and, and that's what I'm trying to investigate and, and understand what the Bible has to say about this kind of relationship. And in the Old Testament, in your view, there are kind of two paradigmatic friendships that speak to this, which is uh, Ruth and Naomi and David and Jonathan. That's right. So, um, you know, they they are clearly celebrated in the biblical narrative as being profound and wonderful human friendships. And the fascinating thing about both of them is how different they are from the Greek and Roman classical ideal. I mean, and particularly Ruth and Naomi is an extraordinary kind of relationship. First of all, it's remarkable that in a very patriarchal society, you know, the Bible's written by men, and it's going to be read by men mainly. It's remarkable that actually uh, the friendship between two widows, an interracial, intergenerational 
friendship between widows who are at the bottom of the social rung, it's remarkable that that should be play such a prominent part in the biblical narrative. And for those who uh, who immediately remember, a, a quick primer: uh, Naomi is a is a is a Jew, um, and she is driven by famine. She flees the, the land of Israel and goes to the the next door uh, pagan nation of Moab to try and find food. And she brings her husband and her two sons. Uh, the sons both marry local women, one of whom is Ruth. And then disaster strikes, where the husband dies and then both sons die and so you're left with this actual a trio of widows um uh, naomi decides uh they needed to try and get back to her homeland uh in this incredibly kind of perilous existence as as women without any male protector in a in a violent and patriarchal society this is a very dangerous place to be uh one uh, of the moabites women decide they won't they will stay in their homeland but but ruth says astonishingly, that um, even though she is a Moabitess and she could return to her family, presumably, and try and be remarried to a local man, she says, no, I will stick with you, Ruth, and I will travel, take the journey back into what for her is a is a foreign, dangerous country where they worship a different god, speak a different language, um, and cleave to her, her mother-in-law. Absolutely. So, so the first thing to recognise is that the two younger women do own a, owe a familial duty to their mother to her mother-in-law. But what's clear is that Naomi releases them formally from that familial duty. And she says, go return each of you to her mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Yahweh grant that you find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. So, So the best hope, Naomi sees the best hope is for the women to stay in Moab and find a husband. They're young. They're marriageable. Uh, it should be okay. And and one of the women's Orpah, uh, returns to her people and to her gods. Um, and and of course the god of Moabite was was Chemosh, who is described as the abomination of Moab. I mean, a, a sort of fearsome pagan deity. About. Astonishingly, Ruth refuses to abandon Naomi and, and clings to her. And there's a powerful Hebrew word, dabek, which is the same word that's used of the, of the husband and wife clinging to one another and becoming one flesh in Genesis. And, um, and then she takes a, 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 a vow, a covenant vow. Of course, his famous words, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And uh, my friend Chris Wright, who's a, as a biblical scholar, very well known, he said, you know, that Ruth must have seen something uh, better because all she had seen from this God of Israel was two mm. weddings and three funerals. <laughs> and he put his... It's a striking example of an unprosperity gospel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that what happens is is that this friendship, this unlikely friendship between this pagan young woman and this older widow, uh, they, they cling together and they make a covenant. It's a covenant loyalty, and and then the 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 salvation 
the, the significance of this for salvation history, you know, to fast forward because of this friendship and, and them looking out for each other in practical care as, as well as uh, in genuine love. Um, you know, Ruth marries Boaz with Naomi's help and advice. And Ruth enters into this pagan woman, enters into the Davidic line. And, and I think you might even say that Jesus had Ruth's genes in him. You know, and it's all because of friendship, an extraordinary, unlikely friendship between two women. Hmm. And you said that that some of the language in, in the Hebrew actually picks up on how God is described. Is that right? That's right. So this beautiful word, which comes time and time again throughout the Old Testament, is the Hebrew word hesed, uh, which is variously translated covenant love, steadfast love, loyal love. You can see the translators trying to encapsulate the meaning of this single Hebrew word. But it, it basically means um, a, a covenant love, a, a love which is founded on a unbreakable covenant. And the idea is that God shows his people chesed. In fact, in that self-revelation on the mountain in Exodus 33, 34, uh, God, Yahweh, appears to Moses and he says, I'm a God of compassion uh, full of grace, long-suffering, full of uh, hesed and emet, which is faithfulness. So, so this is God's character. But the fascinating thing is exactly the same word is used of Ruth and Naomi and of uh, David and Jonathan. Uh, so, so these friendships are supposed to model uh, the covenant love, the covenant loyalty of, of God. And, you know, that is a very profound thought that, Human beings are created to be, to reflect God's character. You know, we're made in the image of God as reflections of his character. And so if you want to know what God's chesed actually looks like, you know, it's a very abstract idea. What does it actually look like? Well, look at two friends who've walked together for 50 years. Uh, or for that marriage, look at, a, look, uh, that matter, look at a really good marriage, which also reflects chesed over decades and decades, because that's... That's what God's covenant loyalty is like. Hmm. And we see the fruit of this a few chapters down the line when, when Ruth ultimately marries Boaz um, and then they have a, have a son together. And, and this kind of provides Naomi both with kind of, you know, knits her back into uh, a bloodline and people who are going to provide for her in old age, but also talks about how there's a kind of the language the the the, the book talks the bible talks about the, the joy that 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 this grandson brings to her all because of ruth's hesed ruth's steadfast clinging to her mother-in-law when she had no obligation or duty to do so yeah there's this lovely line where the women in the village say to naomi your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to a son in other words you know in that culture to have given birth to seven sons was the uttermost heights of <laughs> what a mother could want for. But actually, Ruth's friendship and love meant more to Naomi. She was more to you than seven sons. Mm. So there's just this little hint of this incredible depth and love between the two of them. Mm. And it's funny, isn't it? Because I feel like the the cultural paradigm 
we have in in our culture about mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws is that they're incredibly fractious, awkward, <laughs> complex, highly emotional relationships that at best you survive. And yet here we have a, an entire book of the Bible about the relationship between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law, which is also a intergenerational, across cultural, across ethnic and religious lines. And yet it's an incredibly positive, joyful story out of the ashes of tragedy and disaster, famine and death comes this unbelievable story of redemption. Absolutely. And it's all about friendship. That's what friendship is. That's what friendship looks like. That's what friendship can offer. And it's so different, isn't it, from this classical image of two elite males Mm. enjoying one another. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Okay, so that's Ruth and Naomi. Uh, shall we talk about David and Jonathan? Because this is, again, often held up as the kind of archetype of Old Testament biblical friendship. But it also, it's an incredibly controversial, can I say, or a contested passage, you know, and people are spend a lot of time either arguing that it is an example of a, of, of a same-sex relationship or that it very much is not an example of a same-sex relationship. Yeah, so that's isn't it sad that, you know, whenever you hear a sermon on David and Jonathan, the single most important thing we really need to engage with this is, is it all about sex or not? You know, as though we we simply cannot avoid these sexual spectacles. Um, and 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 uh, we're just so uh, dominated by this fascination, obsession with sex. But. What's interesting, again, is that it's actually, much to my surprise, as I read around this, this is also really an intergenerational friendship. So Jonathan is an elite, at an elite uh, social status. He is uh, mid-30s. He's the heir to the throne. He's a, he's a proven warrior. Uh, and you've got to imagine him standing there in his splendor, you know, with his gleaming armor and his massive sword. And he's <laughs> utterly and utterly self, self-confident because he is the elite male and he's the heir to the throne. 
And then along comes this guy who is somewhere between 16 and 18. And he's he's the the youngest of a non-entity peasant family. And he's just killed Goliath, Goliath with, a, with a cheap um, shepherd's trick with a, with a stone. And yet as soon as uh, Jonathan sees David, it says his heart went out to him. And uh, as somebody put it, when Jonathan went to meet David, he had nothing to gain and everything to lose. I mean, what did Jonathan possibly have? by giving his heart to this young urchin Mm. who was nearly 20 years younger. I mean, you know, it it instantly has kind of safeguarding concerns written all over this. I mean, you know, (laughs) what's going on here? And, you know, know, people talk a lot about, you know, imbalances of power and abuses of power. And you have this kind of, you know, illiterate peasant boy brought into the corridors of power is this is this an example of grooming by jonathan yeah you know, is absolutely. This, this is deeply absolutely. unhealthy for someone who's so educated rich powerful experienced to be spending so much time in friendship with this kind of wide-eyed boy from the sticks <laughs> just because he had one you know lucky win in, in the war against goliath absolutely and yet the narrative says there's clearly a kind of chemistry here it's not a sexual chemistry, it's, but it's a chemistry. And as soon as, the, uh, as soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit, there's this, this strong Hebrew word, to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant. So here it is again, made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, if you are the heir to the kingdom and there's a potential young upstart uh, arrive, the last thing you do is you hand over, you make yourself utterly defenseless by giving him your sword and your armor. And, and you, he stripped himself and gave everything to David. Well, I, as I was... Uh, Reflecting on this, I came across some wonderful words from Dostoevsky, who said, to love a person means to see him as God intended him to be. And I think what's clear in the narrative is that God is giving Jonathan a glimpse of who this guy really is and of of who he is intended to become. And, And Jonathan, you know, movingly instead of seeing him as a threat, someone who's actually going to deprive him of his own kingship, uh, he he sees him as God sees him and and is drawn to him in love. And eventually, of course, to fast forward, uh, Jonathan sacrifices his own life, protecting David and his right to the throne. Hmm. And, and so when there is this kind of almost civil war in Israel between David and Saul and David's on the run, Saul is trying to kill David um, uh, to prevent him from kind of replacing Saul on the throne. Jonathan is kind of caught in the middle between his father and his best friend, um, both fearful, I guess, both that his dad will end up killing his friend. But also if David kind of wins a struggle, 
the standard practice would be for David to wipe out the entire family as as the usurper when he takes the throne. It would, it would be expected that he would immediately slaughter everyone related to the previous incumbent so that there were no rivals. So Jonathan is, is at great Absolutely risk right. on I, either way. Absolutely. But then they say, you know, D- D- David reminds uh, Jonathan of the co- of their original covenant and says, deal kindly. And again, the Hebrew says, show chesed to your servant, for you've brought your servant into a covenant of Yahweh with you. So so it's a covenant, but it's not a covenant of, of, of sexual fantasy. It's a covenant of Yahweh. I mean, that's that's why it's so ludicrous. You know, in the way that this this relationship is presented, it's so ludicrous to say it was just a, a homosexual uh, attraction between the two. This is this is explicitly described as a covenant of God. Hmm. And so, what what happens next then? How does uh, how does Jonathan and how is how does Jonathan and David's relationship progress as as the bitter struggle between David and Saul unfolds? Well, again, you can just see the um, the struggle uh, of their they're torn apart. They're, they're different in different places of the country. They have these occasional clandestine meetings. It's incredibly risky, um, and you know they they uh, there's this very touching thing uh, where they they meet in secret. They have a code with a young boy. And, and as soon as the boy had gone, David comes out from where he's been hiding. And they kissed one another. They wept with another. Well, then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we've sworn both of us in the name of Yahweh, saying, Yahweh shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. So they, they again reaffirm this hesed, this covenant loyalty. And, uh, and they have one final meeting in the wilderness, uh, and, and and Saul strengthens David and helps him find strength in God, interestingly. And he says, don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. So there is that grace. You know, he says, yeah, you're going to be king, and I'm going to be second beside you. But actually what happened is that Jonathan is then killed uh, defending uh, the right of 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 David and uh, protecting David from the murderous jealousy of his father and from the Amalekites, and then you get this this uh, David's heart is torn out. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. Hmm. And of course, that's where everybody says, "Oh yeah, well I showed you." <laughs> you can't win. Can you? you can't win. And I guess this underlines, again, you know, if friendship is with each other, with kind of God's image bearers, is is an insight into the the love that God holds for us, but also the kind of deep vulnerability that is carried with it within that relationship. That when you do make that kind of covenant of said, uh, when you open yourself up to another person, you are opening yourself up to to potentially, you know, great sorrow, great suffering, because you've made yourself so vulnerable. And in the same way, God uh, by reaching out in in his chesed love for us <laughs> so often we we reject him and so it's a it's a it's a sobering reminder isn't it of of the costs of friendship yes but it, but it's also the incredible depth of 
of of what human friendship can be. And, you know, I was very struck because a, a friend of mine who's a single woman working abroad in missions had developed a very close friendship with another woman who was also uh, working in missions. And they they'd really developed this deep covenant loyalty. And then her friend had developed uh, illness and had died. And uh, she was absolutely devastated and grieving. But but what seemed to make things worse was that her colleagues just couldn't understand why she was so upset. I mean, she was only a friend. It wasn't as though you've lost a husband or a sister or something like that. So, and she was deeply wounded by that because it's this inability to see how profound a non-sexual friendship can be. And one of the things that struck me as I've been talking about this, and I've spoken on this to to a number of church groups now and other groups, it's often been the single and often same-sex attracted people who have most responded to this message, you know, this celebration of friendship. Uh, Because so often single people in our culture feel it's a kind of second rate, you know, they can't really have the real deal, which is a sexual relationship. All they can have is a kind of second rate, which is just non-sexual friendship. And and so to, to recover this biblical view that actually in many ways this is a, this can be a deeper, a more profound, more intimate relationship than any even than a sexual relationship. And you see that in the kind of incredulity and hostility that um, kind of revisionist, liberal, whatever language you want to use, affirming Christians make when when responding to the kind of evangelical suggestion that that um, if you experience attraction to the same sex, then then you you know God is calling you to a life of singleness and and celibacy. And there's this kind of incredulity that this is this is possibly be is possible, is plausible, is realistic, is desirable, is good for you, is you know, because the assumption is, well, if you can't have a fulfilling sexual relationship, then your life by definition is going to be empty and lonely and meaningless and and bleak. And God can't want that for our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters. So therefore we need to, you know, open the churches, open the church up to same-sex marriage when really what they're tacitly saying is friendships can never satisfy. Friendships are ephemeral and second rate and meaningless because clearly single people um, are not excluded from friendship. That's absolutely right. And, 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 you know, I also see it in in some of the comments that are made by those who come from the conservative wing who say, you know, we must just recognise the incredible sacrifice that uh, some same-sex attracted people make because they are, they, they're about, you know, they're refusing to engage in sexual relationships. You know, okay, it is a sacrifice, but you know, basically, celibate people—the majority of Christians down the ages—have not had the privilege of being married. You think of all the single people that have been, you know, who have chosen to live celibate lives. Um, so it's only again in this sexually obsessed era we now think gosh what an incredible sacrifice that people must be making so that's friendship in the old testament kind of speaking of the hesed of god himself the covenant love that kind of deep uh, committed loyalty um, characterizing both ruth and naomi and david and jonathan uh, how how is that model taken on forward into the new testament do you think 
Yeah, well, it's important to understand, of course, is that is that the New Testament writers and Jesus himself were all steeped in this Hebraic understanding of friendship. And so, you know, they understood this, the deep significance of this idea of, of, of chesed and so on. And as I was sort of reading around this subject, it just struck me more forcefully how Jesus subverts the understanding of what rabbis are like you know so in first century judaism there was a very well established relationship between the the teacher and disciples and the teacher was addressed as rabbi which comes from the hebrew meaning my great one and uh, one of the rabbis used to say let the fear of your teacher be as the fear of heaven so this is incredibly strict hierarchical a relationship between the rabbi and the faithful followers who did menial tasks and and remembered everything that the rabbi taught them uh, in the hope that eventually, you know, after 30 years of discipleship, they might eventually get to become a rabbi themselves and then have their own disciples. Um, and yet Jesus completely shocks them by uh first of all, he says, you know, you call me teacher and Lord and you're right, for that's what I am. But he then goes on to wash their feet, which is just an utterly shocking thing that no rabbi would ever consider doing. It would be utterly offensive. Um, and, and you know, it, it's interesting that Jesus then goes on and says, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you're all brothers. And call no man your father, for you have one father. And neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So, so Jesus is specifically saying to his disciples, don't go on and do the same thing. Don't go on and make disciples of yourself. And I, th- I think this is, you know, really significant because, and it's the reason I've become increasingly suspicious or, or nervous about this this word discipling or the verb, you know, to disciple people. You know, you hear it quite a lot. You know, I need to disciple people. I'm, I'm involved in discipling. Who are you discipling, and so on? And that just seems to me to be. I mean, the word discipling is so closely related to the word to discipline. And in the coercion control scandal, so often it's been that kind of discipling relationship, uh, a hierarchical disciplining relationship, which, which sadly then goes wrong. And what Jesus says is he subverts that. He says, I no longer call you my slaves. Uh, I call you friends. But hang on, I mean, aren't we supposed to be modelling ourselves on on Jesus's ministry? And he very clearly did that kind of traditional version of discipleship where he gathered 12 people around him, they followed him, they observed him, they copied him, they learned from him, and then he sent them out. And ultimately, a second round, we did 72 to then go out and kind of repeat the process. Are you saying that was a one-off model for for Jesus and we are supposed to do some, some different version of kind of church growth and discipleship? Well, yeah, I mean, in other words, it's, it's, it's a bit more subtle and more nuanced than it's often presented. You know, I, I've often heard this. Oh, yes. You know, 
Jesus gathered 12 people around and he changed the world. He invested in them. So, so we got to do the same thing. Find 12 people, find 12 disciples, and then you disciple them. And then you, you know, then you change the world. And it seems to me that's precisely what Jesus is saying. Don't do. He's, he's subverting that whole pattern. Um, and instead, I want to argue the goal is friendship, paradoxical and sometimes intergenerational friendship. And the model, I think, is Paul and Timothy. Uh, we're probably not going to get have time to get there on this podcast. But I, in other words, it's not uh, authoritarian uh, discipling, um, which which so easily goes wrong. But is that not exactly what John Stott was doing in the 70s and 80s, you know, with you and others, where he picked out kind of young, bright things from from his congregation, uh, uh, people who he thought might be, you know, teachable and influential, gathered them, invested in them, and then sent them out into their various careers and ministries to be influential? Well, at one level, that's true. I mean, he was clearly... Uh, thoughtful, prayerful, intentional in what he was in what he was doing, but he didn't conceive of it. I'm absolutely certain as discipling it. He he conceived it as friendship, and and what he did was he he shared his heart. He made himself vulnerable. He he was he was really offering himself. I mean, one of the Things was he didn't have any program. He didn't say, you know, why don't we meet up and and we'll read a Bible of every week, or you know, read a chapter of the Bible, or you know, I've got this twelve step plan I would like to work through with you. It, it really wasn't that at all. It was, you know, would you like to share my life? How can I pray for you? What are you reading at the moment? Would you like to come out with me? I'm going to uh, a restaurant, a play. Uh, bird watching trip um so he he's sharing his heart but at the same time he's making himself vulnerable and uh he is a genuinely servant-hearted uh uh person and i i think you see the same in paul and timothy i mean Paul makes himself vulnerable to Timothy. He talks about his failures. You can see the warmth between them. You know, come and see me and and bring the cloaks. And, you know, so yes, he does. He does uh, advise Timothy and give him instruction, but it, it, it's not that authoritarian, um, hierarchical, transactional relationship, which I'm afraid often seems to develop. And this is how it's so subversive of that first century rabbinical role, because the rabbi-disciple relationship was entirely one way. The disciple came to sit at the feet of the rabbi, the rabbi would impart his wisdom, and the disciple would do what he was told, and carry the rabbi's bags, and set up the tent, and all that stuff. But the rabbi didn't really get anything, or expect, or want anything from the disciple. It was all one way, whereas it sounds like what you're describing, both for John Stott and you, and for Paul and Timothy is actually a genuinely more equal relationship in which John Stott wasn't just drawing you into his orbit so that he could shape you and form you and mold you into a Christian leader, but because he actively wanted to spend time with you and, and you were 
blessing him by your presence by going to the theater and going to restaurants and talking and reading books together and likewise paul is clearly um shaping and training timothy but he also actively timothy he benefits from just being friends with timothy absolutely but it's but it's it's jesus as well so so you, you know this beautiful cameo of the relationship between Jesus and and Mary and Martha and uh, Lazarus. You know what's clear is they just loved hanging out together, and and Jesus loved spending time, having meals together, sharing their lives. They they were just they were this little group, and you know one of the things that struck me is that uh, Jesus must have confronted many people who died. You know, because mm-hmm. his ministry, you know, was of raising people from the dead. It was one of the things he did. Yeah. Uh, and yet there's only one death in all the Gospels, which is recorded as have completely destroying him emotionally. And who was that? Well, it was the death of Lazarus. And the uh, the onlookers cannot believe that this rabbi is so completely emotionally distraught and destroyed by the death of this one guy. And they say, see how much he loved him mm. because this is the model of friendship. And then, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's a very touching movement when, again, Paul with uh, Jesus with uh, Peter, James and John uh, says, stay with me. You know, I, I've got this terrible thing, you know, but but don't leave me. Uh, he, he's exposing himself. He's making himself vulnerable. And he's asking them to, to, to stay with him. So, so it's Jesus himself. This model of friendship starts. And, and you know, the, the theologians say when, whenever there's some kind of shift, some climax point in salvation history, you often get this thing, you know, it was said, but I say to you. And that's what Jesus says in the upper room. You know, I no longer call you servants i call you friends it's that and that point is the point at which a new model of relationships enters into salvation history and this is going to be the model because jesus himself and of course jesus is god incarnate wants to be friends and so you have building on the idea of the old testament of this chesed this covenant loyalty this steadfastness now you have layered on top of that this deep emotion emotional vulnerability this uh this, this leveling of social hierarchies and and kind of well and and god himself as you say in this radical scandalous act welcoming in uh inviting us his created beings to be to be friends with the the king of the universe i mean it often mm. strikes me that we often don't really appreciate the gravity and the significance of that because friend in English has become mm. such a kind of devalued term. You know, mm. we often read that passage and, you know, we're coming up to Remembrance Day and, and often at services, we people will read the passage, you know, greater love has no man than he lays down his life for his friend. And it always mm. feels like it lands at a bit of, with a bit of a, a whimper. It mm. seems a bit weak, a bit limp, you know, that he lays his life mm. for his, his wife or his mm. God or his church, or his cause, you know, but he laid down his life mm. for his f- friend. It, it, we we mm. can't really plumb into the intensity of, of, of what the Old Testament gospel writers are trying to say here. 
That's absolutely right. And again, it's this problem with this word, which has been so trashed that it really means virtually nothing. And, and it's been devalued. And we've somehow got to recapture what they understood by this deep, hesed, loyalty, loving commitment to another. And, you know, in, this, in the Old Testament view, in which they're all steeped, the worst possible thing you can do in a friendship is to betray the other. It's to be disloyal. It's to break hesed. And yet the remarkable thing, and it's kind of just, it is never spoken out, but it's there in the narrative. Jesus says to these 12 guys, or actually it's 11 because Judas Iscariot has left. And he says, I call you friends. Uh, and then within hours, every one of them has broken, has been disloyal, has broken that friendship. They're running scared. Uh, so there's this terrible paradox. And yet, you know, there's a subversive element to this because the narrative makes plain that Jesus does have loyal friends. So who are the loyal friends? Answer, it's all the women. It's the women who go to the cross, uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary the mother of James and John. They go to the cross. They take the risk. They watch where he's buried. They prepare spices over the Sabbath. They return to the tomb on Sunday morning. And it's the women, the faithful friends, who are the witnesses to the resurrection. So uh, interestingly, Jesus has his friends, but it's not the disciples. <laughs> and, and just lastly, then, as a closing point, you, you pointed out to me there's something quite interesting about um, in, in later on in the uh, the New Testament, Paul in so many of the epistles, not just to Timothy, but also in some of the epistles to churches, at the end, he often pulls out named people that he knows in that church, in Ephesus or in Colossae or wherever he's writing to, and and includes these little kind of personal vignettes. And then there's a whole chapter of them at the end of Romans, which seems to be a kind of commentary almost on the theology. You know, Romans is an intensely theological book, and yet it ends with this incredibly down-to-earth list of, of Paul saying, say hello to this person who is a, a a dearly beloved fellow worker in Christ and say hello to this person who is my fellow kinsman and beloved in the Lord. And and he's, and it's almost a kind of a little glimpse we have into how Paul was living out this theology of friendship in the early church in the first century. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I'm really grateful to my friend Chris Wright who, who pointed that out, that it's a kind of commentary, as you say, of and, it, and just demonstration that Paul is not just talking theory. He, he's living out this friendship. And, and in all in that chapter, there are 26 individuals of whom he names. And, and, and in most of them, there's some special thing, you know, my beloved in the Lord, Mary, who worked hard, the mother of Rufus, who's been a mother to me as well. Uh, nine out of the 26 are women. Uh Many of the names are common names for slaves. Prisca and Aquila were Jewish Christians. Uh, and there's another one, Aristobulus, who was thought by many commentators to have been the grandson of Herod the Great and friend of the Emperor Claudius. So uh, they, you've got the complete social spectrum and uh, men and women. And yet, clearly, this is the deep bond of friendship uh, which, which unites them all. And Paul ends by saying all these all these friends, these brothers and sisters in Christ must greet each other with a holy kiss. Um, a, an idea which, you know, often raises titters in the youth group when we get to that bit of Romans. <laughs> but again, illustrates for us the 
the chasm between our own kind of shallow cultural understanding of friendship because we just can't wrap our heads mm. around the idea and yet the depth and profundity of these deeply christian friendships that that paul is is living is living out yeah and of course part of this is that they are under persecution they're risking their lives uh, they're they're having to cover for one another protect one another you know they're constantly uh risking lives for, for each other and therefore it's often you notice that that in where uh, Christian believers are under intense persecution. You see how this bond of friendship, uh, of loyalty, of chesed becomes uh, so much stronger. So, it's, it, you know, to finish, there's this, just this beautiful picture of friendship which goes throughout the whole of the Bible. And I, I just think it's so sad that we hear so little about this, you know, in in, in sermons, in Bible teaching, in Bible studies. It, it just seems to have got lost. Um and and I would love to just to be able to hear more of this great vision of committed covenant loyalty, friendship which unites people in love, and and yet which which is not sexual, it's not coercive, it's not exclusive, but it's reflecting the very loving covenant love of God Himself. Mm. And we're hopefully in the coming months maybe going to come back to this topic for a final episode to to look at how we can trace this line through of some of these biblical ideas about friendship and see how we might work them out, bring them to life today in the church in the 21st century, being aware of what we can't be unaware of that we discussed in the first episode about friendship, about, you know, these scandals and the way in which church leaders as well as others have kind of abused these friendships within churches. You know, how do we, how can we build truly christian biblical friendships friendships that can point us to who god is and his love for us uh without um you know falling into the traps that so many sadly have fallen into um but that's for another time i suppose and, and before then we should probably just have another flag up for your book that's called transforming friendship it's available um you can order that as an ebook or a physical book um it's available to pre-order now and it's coming out in the coming weeks we'll put a link about how to get all the details to get hold of it in the in the podcast description. I just want to point out that the the title "Transforming Friendship," which which I didn't come up with, but with, which my original editor did, is is quite. Uh, it has a double meaning. So on the one hand, it's the idea that friendship can be transformative. These kind of friendships can really change us, as my friendships have changed me. But it's also that we need to reimagine friendship for the twenty first century. You know, we just can't repeat the models that John Stott and others carried out in the 1960s and 70s and 80s because we're in a different world. Uh, And therefore, we've got to somehow reimagine Christian friendship in a way which is faithful to the Bible. (coughs) We've got to reimagine Christian friendship in a way that's faithful to the Bible, but which actually relates to the modern world which which takes into account the painful reality of sexual abuse coercion control and and all the scandals there've been in in the christian community and and wider in our society absolutely well uh, no small task you've set yourself there dad <laughs> um, let's hope that your book can be a can be a, a step in the right direction um looking forward to reading it myself um, yeah, as I said, we'll put a link about how to get get hold of it. Um, and as always, uh, there's other stuff 
dad's writing on on friendship and relationships you can find on his website that's johnwyatt.com and we'd love to hear from you we'd love to hear your thoughts about friendship maybe uh any disagreements feedback uh from from what we've been talking about um or anything else suggestions of what we might look at in the future um, we like to hear from listeners so do get in touch you can email molad m-o-l-a-d at premiere.org.uk but otherwise we will speak to you with another episode next week until then bye bye you've been listening to matters of life and death a podcast from premier unbelievable 